I know that's a difficult way to introduce a sermon. Um, it is a video that I debated whether or not to play, and first time I watched it, I cried, and I thought, that's too heavy, we can't play that. And then, um, as I was thinking about how we would introduce this topic, and certainly how we would be faithful to the text that we're looking at today, um, we use it as an illustration, an introduction to begin our topic today. We're talking about justice, specifically uh, the in- injustices that we see, and we're going to ask ourselves, what do we really believe about that? Because in this series that we're doing called Really Believe, if you're new and this is your first time, this series is, uh, this is our fourth week in the series. There have been three before, and the three before were trust, uh, community, and evangelism. Those were the first three weeks. Today is justice. And we're looking at these topics and we're saying, I, do I really believe in that? In other words, do the actions of my life demonstrate that I believe these things? Do, do I believe, do I really believe in them? Because if we do, then the actions of our lives are going to, just, are going to justify, are going to prove that that is true, that we do believe these things. So it's a tough question. Uh, for a series to uh, because we're asking it of ourselves but it is a good series normally it would be Scott Wakefield who's giving that message he gave the first few of this series but uh, I am filling in for him my normal tasks and duties here on staff are to do mostly youth ministry middle and high school students if you haven't checked out our ministry space that's transforming downstairs, you're invited to go do that. It looks really cool. We're going to meet in there for the first time as a new space this week. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. That's where I spend most of my time, and I talk to students, and we uh, have a blast together. But every now and then, I'll have the opportunity as well to speak up here with you and to to share in a sermon and just one of those little insider things about what happens when you preach, and this is something if you've preached, you know this, but I'll tell you. Uh, one of the things that happens to you as you prepare for something is that God makes you really sensitive that week, usually leading up. There's it, a reason that he makes you sensitive. It's because you need to be sensitive to him, and he wants to open your eyes and your heart. to what, You've got to learn it all yourself, and sometimes that's painful, and being sensitive is a part of that. I'm not normally a sensitive guy, uh, so it's always a process for me that I experience. Well, I just want to tell you a couple stories that because this is a sensitive week for me, uh, that happened in this week. So I am in a store this week and overhear a conversation. I don't typically listen in on conversations, but you know, some of them you overhear and you overhear, I overheard this conversation. It was somebody that was very distraught because they had just left the hospital. They were at the pharmacy and they were picking up some things for someone who had had surgery. And it occurred to me that I'm often unaware of all the people that are going through surgeries that for many people, even today, did you know today is the most important day in somebody's life because it's a critical surgery for them? That it's one of those days that they would say that was the scariest moment of my whole life. That's happening right now. It's, that that thought occurred to me as I was standing there, how I just blitzed through my day, and I don't realize that that critical moment happens all the time. And if you work in the medical field, you know this. I wrote uh, sent a text to a friend of mine and I said 
I'm so glad that a Christian that I know works in this area. You matter. You make a huge difference. I'm so glad there are Christians there because I realized that I just kind of was overwhelmed in that moment of what that reality looks like. The other op- time happened, I'm driving down the road and uh, I like to um, drive faster than sometimes I'm supposed to. Um, but I'm driving and I'm prevented from going at the speed I would like to for a car in front of me. And um, I pull around and I'm prepared to give the frustrated glare to the driver. Um, who's going, and they were going below the speed limit. Uh, the frustrated glare to the driver and I look over and like God melts my heart because I see this old lady who looks like she's hungry and sad and hungry just because she was really frail, um, but really sad. And I don't know why. I don't know why I saw that. I mean, I didn't wreck. My eyes were on the road enough. I, I think God just let me in to see that moment, to see and to realize, and it just hit me again in that moment. How many people are sad right now? How many people even driving down the road are sad? And I began to pray for this lady and pray for all the people that were sad. And then I started to think, wow, God, I wonder how many prayers right now you're listening to from people who are sad. And I just started to get overwhelmed at what that must feel like to be God hearing prayers from people who are sad. And then I combined that with the thing about the hospital that I had gone through the earlier in the week. And I started to feel even more overwhelmed. And so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take an escape and turn on the television. Well, I go home, I turn on the television. My wife is obsessed with hurricane coverage. Um, so it's like she's got Weather Channel on DVR, um, you know. <laughs> And so we're part of it, not to, she's going to be mad at me. Um, (laughs) Part of that is the hurricane went through a place where we used to live in Charleston, South Carolina. So an extra interest there to her credit, Um, extra interest there. But you're watching that hurricane stuff and you start to think, okay, you know, some of our friends who are moving out and they're showing pictures of flooded parking lots and all that stuff. But then it hits you that in all that stuff you're seeing on TV, then the hurricane moved past Haiti first. And I just pulled a few pictures off the uh, search to hashtag pray for Haiti and uh, just pulled some pictures off of what that destruction and what that damage looked like uh, as the hurricane and the storm moved through there. And this is a, a place in the world where they had already experienced the devastation of an earthquake just a few short years ago, and there was all, not even really recovered from that, and then this. And we look at the death toll of this hurricane, and we see these numbers, and you know almost all of the deaths that are associated with this storm are in Haiti, and you think, that is absolutely overwhelming. What, what could you do? Um, you know, send money, go help, I don't know, what can you do? It's just overwhelming, and so then... You think, okay, well, I'll just, you know, hashtag pray for Haiti, post a picture, go on, try and get some sanity in the world. And then you flip the channel and you hear about another story of another natural disaster. You hear a story of somebody who has cancer and then you hear uh, more things about disease. The list goes on and on and on and the stats just pour in. So then you try and escape. You get to social media. You think I'll look on Facebook and watch funny videos of cats. And unfortunately, there are no cats because... All these stories are bad stories. You see links of things to poverty and to abuse and all these social injustices and all these things that people care about. And so they posted a little article. You're scrolling through there. And I happen to have some friends who are really 
raising awareness about child trafficking. And so I'm scrolling my Facebook feed looking for cat videos and I instead find child trafficking videos. And then I'm just like, just like absolutely like wrecks you. And like, what do you do in that moment when all this you're just flooded with all of this stuff? And then you think, oh, I didn't know slavery still existed. But then you showed me that video, Tommy. And so then that video's there. And now I think about slavery. And did it say 45 million in slavery today? And you think, that's how do I even comprehend that? Like, I don't even know where to start. And you're overwhelmed. And so that's where I was. And that's where I think we get. When we take a survey of what's in front of us, and that's just digitally, that's just with media. Some of you have traveled the world and you've been to some of these places. Some of you I know actually went to Haiti and did some mission work there. A group of us together from this church went to Kenya and we were going to, to um, minister among the Maasai tribe. And, but because we were in the urban area of Nairobi and Kenya, we spent... A day, and we went to the Kibera slum, which is one of, I think it's the third largest slum in the whole world. It's the largest urban slum in Africa. And I have some pictures of that, of what that looks like. You've likely seen them. It's one of the most widely studied slums in the world. And what a slum is, is a whole lot of people living in terrible poverty, all crammed in together. It's a little river valley that winds its way in urban Nairobi. And people have put these metal shacks in everywhere you go. There's trash and poverty and disease and drugs and violence and crime. And it's everywhere. And we don't have a lot of pictures. That's our group walking through. We don't have a lot of pictures of this moment, even though it was one that none of us will forget. Because we're standing there looking at this landscape in front of us, and we don't even know what to do. What do you say in that moment? We were quiet. Uh, We had no words. We're walking around and confronted with stepping over trash and thinking if I stepped in that puddle... Will my foot rot away? It's a strange thought to even think. And people live there and then absolutely overwhelming. The smell, the the sounds. Maybe you've been there. Either digitally or maybe you've been there in person. And you look and are absolutely overwhelmed to the point of being paralyzed. Frozen. What do I even do in the face of all of this? What do I do in the face of all the injustice I see in the world around me? What happens in that moment for you? I know for me, and I've explained some of the ways that I respond in that, but I wonder if you are like me and you respond maybe sometimes just being overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. You don't even know how to feel. If that's a moment you've ever felt before or one that maybe even today you're experiencing in a new way, I hope you'll stick with me as we work through this message. What we're going to do is we're going to explore together a passage of Scripture that deals with one injustice, one example, and we're going to look at that and it's slavery, which like the video we introed with is slavery. We're going to look at that and we're going to see how God might call us to respond together in the face of injustice and then we're going to end together. There's a a story that I'd like to share with you, a piece of wisdom that I've grabbed from a preacher who's instructed my life a little bit, and I just have grabbed that, and it's made a tremendous impact in my life personally. That's kind of 
the game plan, uh, so to speak, of where we're headed, what we're going to, going to do. I'd like to, we're going to look in Scripture first and just give you a second to go on a scavenger hunt to find this uh, book of the Bible. We're going to look at uh, the letter of Paul to Philemon, so it's called Philemon in your Bible. If you have a paper Bible, use that. That's going to be more fun right now. Um, so use your paper Bible if you have one. If you have a digital Bible, that's okay. You'll get there faster than anyone else with a paper Bible. I promise you. Um, and so go ahead and start to find that. This is one of those books of Scripture that you may think, I, I think I've heard of that. If you have, maybe it's like me. I was a teenager, and I'm thinking I would like to do something spiritual, so I shall read in my Bible. But I want to read something. I want to accomplish something because I can't tell you how many times I got stuck halfway through Genesis. Um, so I want to accomplish something in my Bible. So I look for the book of the Bible. Maybe I can finish. And so I find this gem, uh, Philemon, beautiful, all on one page. And I'm like, jackpot. And so I read this as a teenager. Maybe you've been there before like me, and this is one that you've read, but maybe you just glossed right over it and you missed some of it. We're going to look at it today. Um, So hopefully my stalling of telling you my story um, has allowed you to find it. If not, look at the screens. We'll read through that together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras and my fellow prisoner, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
So we just read an entire book of the Bible together in church. And I still have time to preach. Isn't that really cool? Um, You didn't know that was possible. You looked at that and you turned there and you thought, this is nice. It's short. It's all on one page. There should be no problem doing a nice exposition of this. And we might get out early for lunch. Um, Let me explain the roller coaster ride of sermon writing. So you start out real low and and you realize, I have a lot of work to do. And so then you start to study and you go and you get really, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. And then what happens is at some point you realize I've learned a lot more than I really thought I was. I can't say that much during the sermon. And so then you go back down and you realize, oh, I can't say all that good stuff that I learned. I know some of you are thinking this is a small roller coaster. It's not. Um, that then you realize I've got to say something. So you go back up, you work through it. Look. Let me give you a picture of this roller coaster ride that I took. I looked at this and I thought, just like you, nice, small, easy, good, got it. Um, and you look at that and then you start to dive into commentary. And I have this commentary on my computer. It's called Logos Bible Software, and it collects all the books digitally. It's helpful. And so then you can search through that. So I have commentary. I open that up to this section of the Bible, and it collects all the commentaries that we have on there, at least that I have purchased um, on there. Scott has purchased more than I have, as it makes sense. Uh, So he says, I will look at your software and see which commentaries I have that you don't have, and then I'll create a document and share that with you. That'll be, you'll get a full preparation. Thank you. That's very generous, Scott. So he sends me this document, and it's only the commentaries that I don't have that he does on Philemon, And that document is 117 pages long. (laughs) It's one page. Like, you want to know why it's received that much attention? It's because of the topic. It's received that much attention because the topic is one of interest. And it's a very difficult one to address. And it's this topic of slavery and, you know, it's been studied greatly over time. And um, one of those topics that's that's difficult. Um, And so the, the commentators have spent a great deal of time looking at this book. And I would love for you, if you enjoy study, to dive in and to learn and to see those things as well. But I don't have time for 117 pages. My sermon script is 10 pages, so, and we're halfway through. Um, so <laughs> it's not that long. But I want to I tell you um, just some quick highlights of what it, when we do look at this text together, what do we see? Because there's some really, really fun stuff. I think this is a special letter that Paul writes for um, some reasons. And let's just talk about the fun stuff first, and then we'll get into the heavy stuff. The fun stuff is that Paul uses word games. That's good. The fun stuff is that he uses word games with people's names. And so Philemon is the name of, of something there. In the beginning it says, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And the word Philemon, if most people's names meant something, you recognize that root of that name because you know the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so you recognize this phileo, the beginning root of this word Philemon. So uh, a Philemon, Philemon, no, my, I've forgotten how to say it. Philemon, um, that's a, that was fun. Um, phileo is the root word of his name, which, which really just means to uh, to be loved. And so the word game that Paul plays here. 
is he's saying, beloved, my beloved. Beloved, my beloved. So he plays a word game with the name. He also plays one with Onesimus' name as well. And so Onesimus' name translates as well, has a meaning. His name means useful. There is a common name for slaves, really, that useful is a name that uh, they would take. And so his name means useful. And so then you look and you see in verse 11, it says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful. And so he plays that same word game with the names there, with Onesimus, which means useful. Although the word that means useful with Onesimus is not the exact, it doesn't rhyme in the same way with the word useful there in verse 11. Because there's a there's like a double word play that's going on here. So the word there that means useful is a word that sounds in Greek just like the the word for Christ. And so the difference is a long E or a short I. And so you have Christos and Christos. And so the, they sound very similar. It's just a vowel difference. In fact, side note, if you're interested, a lot of people confuse the word useless with Christ and, and that... So that was kind of like a joke, inside joke for Christians, that they, they confuse that together. And so Paul knows that. Um, and so as he writes, he kind of weaves in this nice little joke um, in, in the text there and does this word game. But what does Onesimus' name mean? It means useful, but also means beneficial or of benefit. So Paul does use that word later on in the text, actually, in I think the coolest spot of uh, of this book in verse 20 he uses that word um, beneficial verse 20 says yes brother which by the way Paul also calls Onesimus his brother calls um, and then is calling Philemon his brother as well and so he's calling both of them brother that makes a difference when we're talking about master and slave So then he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit. That's the benefit word right there. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. That's the only time that word is obscure word. It's not what you would normally use. So Paul chooses it on purpose. Um, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Well, that word benefit is the same root word that Onesimus' name comes from. I want some benefit from you. What does he want from you? He says, refresh my heart in Christ. Remember earlier when he called Onesimus his heart? I'm sending you my very heart. Well, we'll spend some time talking about that word heart. It's a fun word. I've shared some Greek with you so much that I made myself tongue-tied um, with the Greek words. Um, promise this will really like be the last one. You don't have to learn Greek um, to, to understand, but this one's fun. The word for heart is splanknon. That's fun to say. I think about that elf movie when I do that. But that's fun to say. Splonknon is a fun word to say. It, it kind of sounds like it's coming up from your, like the very inside of you. Well, that's splonknon. It's what it means. It means like the very inside of you, your heart. Not like your beating heart, but your, your guts. Um, the very core of who you are. So Paul uses that, and uh, it's uh, one that he is very intentional with how he pieces that throughout this letter. He talks about how um, Philemon has refreshed the hearts 
of the saints. He talks about how Onesimus is his very heart. And then he asks again for some refreshment uh, from Philemon. And he's saying this, not just, here's a guy I really like. He's saying, here, receive him as you would receive me. Here's my very heart. Here's what I want you to grab from that. There's no doubt that Paul made this very personal. Very personal. This is a letter that he didn't just kind of pin and write and, oh, okay, that's nice, good advice. He put himself in it, very much so. He put his own heart in it to a very strong degree. And I want us to catch what's happening there with that word heart because this is, this is where it gets real, I think, because that same word splanknon is the root for this word that's often translated in Scripture as compassion. Compassion's the word that we're familiar with. We're called to be compassionate. You know this if you've read Scripture before. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Mark 8, verse 2, these are just two examples where it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Both of those are, are places where Jesus sees a crowd that is hungry, and then he miraculously feeds them. He has compassion on them. Later on in Mark, or I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 4, that same word is used when it talks about Jesus having compassion and healing the sick. Compassion is a, a word originates inside of you, but then moves to action. So here's how we would describe this word compassion. I have this sense of pity or sorrow or sympathy inside of me in the very core of who I am but it's so deep within who I am it drives me to action that's compassion compassion is that uh, really just simply defined that I have a conscious sorrow for something and I'm moved to action because of it and so it's an important word we'll take a look at it a little bit more in just a little bit but the way Paul uses this word heart which is also the root word of compassion drives home how personal he takes it. And so as we're looking and saying, this is a sensitive issue, slavery, that's why Paul takes care to do that. And I just want, before we move too far ahead, a side note about slavery, because slavery is really not what this is about. Um, it is, but it's not the main theme. The main theme is much more about uh, Christian fellowship. It's much more about our, our new relationship with one another and unity in Christ. It's much more about that than slavery. However, we need to talk about slavery because that's the focus of what kind of the backstory of what's going on here. In order to do that, I want to describe for you the difference between the, the situation of slavery that was happening at, at the time of Scripture and what most of us in here think about when it comes to slavery and or the way that video described slavery that we watched earlier. And I don't want to say this and then you hear, oh, you're saying slavery is not that bad. I'm not. Um, slavery was still oftentimes bad even in the ancient times. However, it was different. It's different than what we think. Here's some ways that it was different. It was different because um, it was often a way to, to improve your um, wealth. Your, um, you were so poor that you would your life would be improved to be a slave. People knew that, and so they would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery because it would improve their wealth. Um, 
likewise, it wasn't typically abusive, which is something that we have in our mindset about slavery being very abusive. It was not typically abusive. Uh, The mindset of slavery was that you wanted your slave to be valuable for you. And so another large difference, especially in American history, slavery, which is marked by illiteracy, that this was not ancient um, slavery. They valued the education of the slaves because the more educated the slave was, the more valuable they became. That does not mark our American history with slavery, and so it's different in that way. Also, there are no racial overtones. It was not limited to a black, white, or a certain type of uh, race and, and another, and, and it was not permanent. Is not permanent. It was one of those things. No one thought it was permanent. No one labeled and said that person is a slave forever. You could enter into and out of slavery. And those were differences. Again, do not hear me say that I believe slavery is acceptable if it looks like that. The reason I say that strongly is because Christians have for a long time used scripture to justify slavery and to make arguments for slavery. And that's one of the reasons there's so much commentary on this book in particular. I do not believe that you can look into scripture and make an argument that holds any weight whatsoever that slavery is okay in line with the principles that we find in the Bible. In fact, I think slavery mocks compassion. I think that slavery is something that is, is, is in exact opposite of the biblical principles that we have of the way we, that way we have equality before God. Paul, in fact, demonstrates that himself in the way he writes in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Slavery is not consistent with Scripture. It's not consistent with Scripture. However, if the slavery of Scripture, if this situation in the Bible looked similar to what slavery looked like in that video or to what maybe we know in American history, I do believe Paul would have made a much stronger directive at saying, free your slaves. I think he would have said something about abuse much stronger than he did. But that doesn't mean that he wimped out. It doesn't mean he wimped out. In fact, as we go through this, you'll see his call is to something even greater than that. In fact, here's how that works. When someone comes to know Christ, when people believe in Christ, you become identified in a new way. You become adopted into a family that is united, all one in Christ, under Christ. And so Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon are all in that together. And this book here demonstrates for us how those three are bonded together now in faith and in brotherhood. And the implications for that change everything. The implications for that change everything. Rather than attacking a social structure, What Christianity does is it works within the heart. Rather than attacking a social system, Christianity works within the heart and from the inside out changes. That's why we sang that song. From the inside out, it changes us. That's why here at First Christian Church, we say this statement, it's in your study guide today, that we believe the highest form of social justice is to help people find and follow Jesus. When Jesus comes into your life, it changes 
everything in the way that we think and act about social justice. So Paul makes this deep, heartfelt plea and says, my heart is in this. Everything we thought about how we interact with one another is different. I'm sending you my very heart back. How will you respond? He asks. I could force you, but I'm not interested in that. I know you'll do even more. Might we ask that question of ourselves? What about us? How would we respond? Faced with a social injustice. Faced with a new reality that we're finding and we're learning in this passage of Scripture today. Something that redefines how we look at one another. That we no longer see each other only as um, another dot on a map, but we see each other as, as under God together, united in Christ. How do we act in that moment? I think the sad truth sometimes is that all we do is we stop and we look at injustice and we say, that's heartbreaking, and that's where we stop. I mean, we're not so cold-hearted that we don't let it break our heart. We don't look at poverty, at slavery, at abuse, and we don't let it break our heart. Some of us will cry and will be moved. Some of us would even, as the title suggests, I demand justice, but I really just share articles online that agree with me. Let me put it simply. When we see injustice and we feel sad, there's a difference between feeling sad and doing something about it. When we just stop at sympathy, or even worse, when we carry around this arrogant pity, which would say, I am so much higher and loftier than you, but I'm poor pitiful you. Even worse, carry around this arrogance. We're not understanding compassion. We're not understanding compassion. Compassion grabs us and requires us to act. It grabs our guts and requires us to act. I'm going to give you an illustration, probably make you forget everything I said. It's a bad one. Distracting. Here it goes. Have you ever had that rumbling in your guts, that the rumbling, not I'm hungry, but the rumbling, you have to go to the restroom. Rumble. <laughs> I know, bad illustration. I know you've felt that. I've felt that. When you have that gripping in your guts, you do something about it immediately because it's gripped you at your core. It rumbles around and you I've got to act. Bad illustration. <laughs> but you get the point now. Maybe unlike you got it before. Compassion grips me inside with sorrow so that I have to act. I must do something about this. I must move to action. And compassion is what we're called to do. Compassion is what God has demonstrated for us. Compassion is how God has demonstrated His work for us in Jesus. And I know we want to do something. We look at these problems and we want to do something. But a lot of times we don't. Because we don't really want to step out like Paul did and really give of ourselves. We don't want to put our heart in it the way he did. We don't want it to grab us in the guts that way. Because that's awkward sometimes. But when people get grabbed in the heart and compassion grips you, 
social injustices begin to disappear. And this is why I think it's okay that Paul didn't make a declaration about slavery specifically. Because his declaration about who we are in Christ is far more revolutionary. By the way, we mess this up tremendously when we talk about Christianity without talking about what Paul's teaching here. Here's what I mean. When we talk about Christianity only as being a relationship between me and God, only, and we don't talk about the relationship that exists in Christianity between us, between one another, then we've messed it up. And I don't want to, I don't want to reach so far, but I do want to say this. When we say things like, I can be a Christian, just me and God don't need to be involved in community. When we say things like that, and we demonstrate that we've forgotten this crucial element of Christianity, maybe the fact that that hasn't gripped us, our relationship to one another hasn't gripped us, maybe that's the reason that injustice still exists in the world. Maybe because we've only been so concerned with me and God and we've not been concerned enough with us. Because I think what Paul is calling us to in this passage is far more revolutionary than just freeing slaves. And so we say at First Christian, we hold this value up that we believe the highest form of social justice is to help people find and follow Jesus. And it's true. And we could talk up there in the clouds about how that's true and how right that is. But I don't like to give a message without something practical. And I want to get practical. And that, it's not always easy to get practical. Fred Craddock is a preacher and he writes this statement, uh, or a preacher and author, he writes this one. He says that the church often is overwhelmed by the totality the church can easily disregard as puny and ineffective the cup of water, the loaf of bread, the small chapel. He goes on to list all these things that sometimes we look at that and we think, I know the Matthew, you know, chapter 25. It, Jesus is teaching. He says, oh, give a cup of water to the people who are poor, clothe the people who have no cl clothes. And Jesus says, you, maybe you know this. this. This is classic children's Sunday school. That when you've done these things unto them, you've done it unto me. We know that. The problem becomes people like me and you, we say, how many cups of water? Everyone gets a cup of water? How many people do I clothe? Everyone? And then there we are back where we started. Overwhelmed by how many cups of water we're thinking we're to give out or how many meals that we give out or how many do we do? I couldn't possibly do for everybody. I couldn't possibly hand out that much water. I couldn't possibly clothe that many people. And so we find ourselves overwhelmed once again. And we try and ignore it. We turn our heads the other way when we walk past someone who's homeless. And What we're called to do is not ignore, but to take action. So the practical piece is how. How? And this is the piece of, of advice and wisdom that I, I feel like I grabbed from, um, from a preacher who spoke into my life specifically. We've grabbed that here at our leadership at church. And I want to intro it with a story. The story that we're going to talk about um, is from an author who's named Lauren Isley. Um, wrote a story about starfish, and you've probably heard this. It can get really corny because it was taken and adapted by an um, 
a motivational speaker named Joel Barker. And this is the type of thing that you get in your for, like email forwards. Um, and I, I'm, I'm normally in the type of person who, if it's corny, I toss it out um, because I just I'm cynical like that. Um, but uh, sometimes I toss it out. This one made a big difference in my life. It's a story. Perhaps you've heard it. I'm going to share it with you today in the form of a video. So watch this. One day, a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking up starfish and throwing them into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, Excuse me, but what are you doing? The boy replied, Throwing starfish back into the ocean. The sun is rising and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. The man laughed to himself and said, But there's too many starfish on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down picked up another starfish and threw it into the ocean. Then turning to the man, he said, I made a difference to that one. Um, Classic story. Um, Friday night, this past Friday night, I was in my Friday night life group. And we were talking from the previous week's sermon. We were talking about how do we act? How do we reach out? How do we evangelize and do something? And one of the people in my life group said, you know, I've just sort of cracked the door to the, to the problem of orphans in the world. And I'm overwhelmed by that problem. So much so that I don't even feel like I can make a difference at all. That was said Friday night in our life group. And you know, it was said by somebody who's adopted an orphan, who that child now, you would say, it's, it makes every bit of difference for your child. You change their entire life. They're adopted. And you may look and you may think, there's no way I could make a difference. And I know that story is a little corny and a little cheesy, but boy, it's true. It makes a difference for that one. And there are people in this room today that would say, Because someone adopted me, it made a difference for me. It made a huge difference. It made all the difference. Because you did something. You did something. A preacher named Andy Stanley talks about how we often get stuck in inaction because we're so concerned about being fair. Here's what he says, and I think I know I can relate to it in my own life. He says, imagine the situation you've all been there before, where you say, could I have a piece of candy? Maybe it's in class. For me, it was in school. Can I have a piece of candy? And the person comes back to you and they say, well, if I give you a piece of candy, I have to give everybody a piece of candy. And I don't have enough candy for everybody. So no, you can't have a piece of candy. And you, if you're like me, I mean, your brain, like mine, you think, well, no, you don't have to give everybody a piece of candy. I'd just, just give me a piece of candy. Like, I won't tell anybody. You don't tell anybody. We'll be good, right? Just give me a piece. We get really concerned, and we, 
We're in that same spot. We look and we say, there's no way I could feed everyone. There's no way I could adopt everyone. There's no way I could free every slave. There's no way I could bring everyone out of poverty. So no, I won't. I won't do anything. Because we're so concerned with fairness. He responds in in telling this, Andy Stanley does, with a statement that I have held for me and it's made such a difference in my life. It's made a difference among our leadership here and I hope it helps you today. He says, you do for one what you wish you could do for all. You do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And I'll tell you, in my life group, there are people who've adopted and they wish they could adopt everyone, but they did for one. And I don't know where you're at in that process of injustice. Maybe you're not doing anything because you don't know what to do. Could I invite you today? What if we just said, I'm going to adopt one child. I can't do all, but I'll do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. I'll adopt one child through Compassion International. I can't do all, but I'll do one. If everyone in this room today, if everyone said, I'll do that, I'll do one thing, and we stopped being overly concerned about, I can't do it all. Can't you see how the injustice in the world would melt away? It wouldn't exist. God's called us to be gripped by compassion to do something. He's called us and He's demonstrated us in Jesus. Aren't you glad that He demonstrated that for us in Jesus? That we have that opportunity through Christ and the work that He's done to be whatever exception we label it. I'm glad that God is reckless in the way He forgives me. It's not fair at all because my sin is too great. But I'm glad that He loves me like that. He lavishes His love for me in Jesus. And if you've never experienced that truth, I promise it will transform you. Today there's an invitation for you to accept that, to come, to be baptized, to accept it for the first time. The invitation is also there as we sing and as we worship. If you'd like to come forward to place membership, if you'd just like to pray, we would invite you to do that. We're going to stand together and we'll sing.